back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is St. Louis comedian Yale Hollander. Yale did his first set when he was 17 and his second set when he was 48. He did a lot of living and lawyering in those 31 years. Now he runs a few shows in Missouri, including a monthly spot at the Gaslight Theater in St. Louis. He's also a frequent contributor of some sort to the New Yorker's cartoon section. Stay tuned for that story. It's a great one. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Sign up for the Patreon. It's just five bucks a month. You can also follow Homebrewed Comedy on Facebook or homebrewedcomedy.com to see all of my show dates. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Glad to be here. You said this is the third podcast you've done today? This is the third podcast that I have recorded today. Yeah, I, uh, in, my, uh, in my day job world, I work for a company that sells all kinds of back office services and whatnot to law firms. So uh, one of the things they do as part of their marketing outreach is they run a couple of podcasts geared toward uh, attorneys and uh, legal tech professionals and things like that. So one of the guys that usually hosts those podcasts is off this week. And so they asked me to come in and sit in since apparently, uh, and I'm not even in the marketing part of the the company at all. Uh, (laughs) But they know that because uh, I'm a comedian and I'm used to doing other people's podcasts and things like that, that it would just be a natural leap for me to come in and, and sit in for the podcast. So it was fun. Uh, I had to watch my language, of course. But other than that, yeah. So this is fun because now I'm good and warmed up. I've got my uh, podcasting voice on and, and we're good to go. Well, you can swear as much as you want here, too. I'm not going to hold that against you. I hear you. <laughs> I love doing podcasts. It's It's... Especially during the pandemic, it was like a very nice outlet. And I ended up like, I produce four of them now, including my own. So like, it's becoming a little bit of a habit, but it definitely gives me a reason to like pour money into equipment. And like, you know, it's, it's better that I spend the money than save it for my future, you know? There you go. Yeah, absolutely. You might as well, you might as well spend it now because, you know, you can't spend it when you're gone. Right. When did you start doing comedy? Uh, well, that's actually a two-prong question, or it's a question that's got two prongs of an answer. Right. If we're looking linearly, the first time that I actually attempted stand-up comedy was 1985. I was 17 years old at that time. I won't say I was the official class clown of my high school, but I was, I was the kind of guy where people would say, yeah, you ought to get up on stage and tell jokes. And uh, I had an opportunity to do that at uh, one of the future fascists of America thing, something called uh, Missouri Boys State, where basically each high school nominates, you know, so many uh, of their supposed future leaders to go to the uh, wonderful resort village of Warrensburg, Missouri, home of the University of Central Missouri, for a week. So you've got 717-year-old boys in dorms for a week learning about how to take over the government basically someday. Uh, But they have a talent show. And so everybody on my floor of the dorm is like, oh, man, dude, you're hilarious. You got to get up. You got to go and do stand-up. So I thought, okay, yeah, great. That's cool. So uh, every set or every, you know, talent act got six minutes up there. So I just go up and try to start telling jokes. Well, you know, I was 17. I didn't realize you actually had to prepare, that you yeah. actually had to write material, that you couldn't just stand up there for six minutes and and riff. And so, I don't know, I got maybe three minutes into the thing and got booed off the stage. And, and that was it for my first stand-up comedy experience. And it was such a positive experience that I waited another 31 years before <laughs> I before I got into it again. At one point in time, uh, my last set had been 1985 and I didn't do another one until 2016. That's crazy. Uh, This time I was a little more prepared. Before I did my first open mic, I had spent, uh, I want to say like about a month just writing material and filling notebooks. And I had something like 
30 something pages of material and was able to squeeze four minutes out of that. Yeah, it was one of those things where I thought, okay, I'm going to get this out of my system again, because I had been kind of encouraged to go back into it by some people who'd been following me like on Twitter and on social media. And they're like, Oh yeah, you should do stand up." And it's like, no, I, I did that once. And it was, it was a horrible experience. And like, yeah, but still you ought to, you ought to try it again. And so I figured, well, you know, there's probably a difference between me at 48 and me at 17 and uh, yeah, it worked. So, uh, you know, I went, I did my one open mic and then I came home and told my wife, I said, okay, well, you know, I thought that was going to be it and get it out of my system, but I'm already signed up for next week's mic. (laughs) The rest is history. It's funny because I did my first open mic at 33 and it was something I wanted to do since I heard Carlin in high school. And then I remember being at, I went to a small school in Pennsylvania, Mansfield, and we had one comedian I don't even know if she was a real comedian, but like she was the only person I knew who was doing anything. And I just sat on that for like 12 years. Yeah. So I was in Baltimore, didn't check out an open mic scene or anything. I think I saw one poster and then I moved back to Binghamton, New York, where I, where I am now. And I just went to an open mic. And I remember when I first went there, I was not the oldest one in the room, but you know, I stuck out a little bit and I was there doing a few sets and one guy came up to me. He goes, man, you have really lived a life, huh? And he was like 25, maybe. Say, what is this Logan's run? Yeah. And I was, <laughs> but, but it got me thinking like, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously if I could turn back time, I would love to start at 21, but I don't know what the material would have been like then because I came back with, with stories about college and, I got stabbed once and I had this experience at a job and I wouldn't have had any of that stuff. I, the best I would have had was like, I zipped up my zipper too quickly. Yeah. I think, I, I think for me, well, there were, there were a couple factors. Number one, you know, I have had, uh, I just, you know, I'm, uh, I'm an attorney by trade. So I had that whole experience of learning, like how to prepare a case, how to prepare an argument, things like that how to sit down, think things out logically, because you only have a fixed amount of time to do certain things, you know, especially in the world of appellate advocacy. Uh, you know, you've usually got, you know, 20 minutes to make your initial argument and 10 minutes for your rebuttal and all that stuff. So you have to think in terms of what do you really want to say? What do you really feel you have to say? All of that. So I had the structural knowledge that I didn't have and wouldn't have had until I had been in a professional environment for a long time. So, so there was that. But the other thing that pushed me back into the comedy game, and this is going to be the biggest first world problem story that you've probably ever heard on this podcast. But in the summer of 2016, about a month before uh, I got back into it, I was on a cruise in Alaska. It was my in-laws 50th anniversary and they brought the whole family on this Alaskan cruise. And for the first half of the cruise, I was sick. I had like bronchitis or something like that. And I was just miserable. And the second half of the cruise, I was just bored stiff and, you know, just kind of sitting around with, you know, and we were at sea. So it's not like I could get off the boat and do anything like that. So I'm just, you know, kind of sitting around feeling sorry for myself, you know, dealing with the old ennui. And that night there was a comedy show on the boat and the headliner was Jessica Curson. I don't know if you're familiar with Jessica. Okay. She gets up there and just for 90 minutes, just about, and she worked clean that night too. It was like a family type show. You know, she just radiated this joy of performing and you could just tell that she was feeding off of the energy in the room. And, you know, and it's a cruise ship. It's a pretty stale crowd or whatever. But I mean, she was up there and you could just tell that she was getting high off of comedy. I'm sure she was probably gotten high on some other things, but (laughs) you could just tell she was riding this wave and it just kept feeding into it and feeding into it and radiating this joy. And it's like, wow. That made an impact on me. I had a good time because she was having a good time. Maybe I ought to try this again. And so that, you know, the combination of knowing that I was a lot more prepared, uh, had the ability to prepare better, 
and seeing the potential for really finding something that gives you satisfaction in life. That's what really pushed me back into it. My parents go on a cruise to Alaska, aside from the pandemic, just about every year. And they rave about it. They've got t-shirts that say Alaska. I, I really think that, that my parents are in the 70s. I think they go to these places just to get new clothes. You know, <laughs> just got to say, like, but they rave about Alaska. I mean, were you able to enjoy that at all? I was able to get out for about a day and a half and see some things. And the the one thing that I, I wanted to do was I wanted, because we uh, made a stop in um, Juneau. And so that's the state capital. I wanted to go and see the state capital. Now, a little bit of background. I grew up in Jefferson City, Missouri, which is the state capital mm-hmm. of Missouri. So I, yeah, I wanted to see, you know, what Alaska's capital was like. So Alaska's capital is at the very top of a pretty sizable hill. Now, granted, not like a mountain, but uh, it was, I want to say, at least a 40-degree incline walking up probably 10, 12 city blocks of just walking steady incline. So I'm going up this hill. And, you know, at the time I was probably 40 pounds heavier than I am now. So I'm carrying some cargo with me going up this hill. And I mean, it's like 40 degrees outside, but sweat is pouring down me. I'm just gross. Get all the way to the top, get to the Capitol building and it's closed. You kidding me? No, no. That was my sightseeing trip to Juneau was getting all the way up to the top of the hill uh, only to look at the outside of the state Capitol building. See, if that's me, I take that as like a personal affront and I never go back to the state. Well, I haven't been back since. So there's that. (laughs) It also costs a little bit of money to go there. Uh, Yeah, um, it it was nice to do it on somebody else's dime. But yeah, I, I don't know that that's something I would invest in. No, no offense to your Alaska listeners out there uh, or to the great Alaska comic, Jessica Michelle Singleton. My parents, every time they come back from that cruise, like, Mike, you got to go. You got to go. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to pay for it. And they're like, oh, we'll pay for it. But then I'm like, I don't want to go with my parents. Right. Like, there's no way. Like, maybe if I were like 18, I would entertain the thought. But I'm 38. I don't want to. Yeah. Like, how am I going to tell that to any of my buddies? Like, hey, I'm going going on vacation, uh, uh, you know, with my with with my parents. Like, grow up, get out of that. You already got out of the house. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I tell you what, if you think that taking me on an Alaskan cruise is going to make me happy, take the cost of the Alaskan cruise, subtract $25 from that and give that sum of money to me. That way you've made me happy and you've saved money at the same time. Plus, you don't need to be around me. Yes, exactly. It's funny. They work so hard to send me away to college to get me out of their house for good. Right. And now they want to spend money to get me back. It doesn't make sense. Right. It's one thing to do it on your own terms. It's one thing to be able to say when you've had enough, oh boy, look at the time, got to go. And then you get in a vehicle and you leave. You can't do that when you're in the middle of the ocean on your way to a non-contiguous state. (laughs) It's like, oh, you know, when you've had enough of your parents on that trip, your only option is to emigrate to Canada. Hey, Canada's all right, but, you know, I got to get a passport. I mean, come on. Either more. that or swim the Bering Strait and end up in Russia. I, you know, <laughs> and only you can one. wave at Sarah Palin. It's only a few miles, right? Right. How tough was it for you to get, like, ingratiated into the St. Louis scene? I mean, I know it's it's fairly big, but, I mean, just there's got to be a little bit of an age gap between, you know, because you're, what, 48 at the time? and. Yeah. I mean, I know I was 33 and I found it difficult. Well, I, here's here's a story that another great St. Louis comic, Angela Smith, tells of uh, the first time that I did an open mic that uh, she was. And she was at my first open mic. It was at the Helium Comedy Club here in St. Louis. She said that uh, the table that she was sitting at was trying to figure out which open mic comedian was my kid that I was there to see. <laughs> And then I got up on stage. So, you know, I think that I cultivated kind of a a natural curiosity among some of the more seasoned comedians that, you know, here's a guy because and then as I come to find out, uh, as I spend more and more time in the scene, that it's not terribly unusual for guys my age to get up and do an open mic because somebody at the office tells them that they've got to do it. 
and they show up with all their buddies from work and they get up there and they're a complete jackass for, you know, seven minutes out of the four that they've been allotted. And then you never see them again. So I think the fact that I went up, that I had prepared material, that, you know, I wasn't just up there, you know, riffing, that I actually had structured jokes uh, and that I continued to come back. I think that I don't know if respect is the right word, but it it, it definitely cultivated kind of a, a simpatico amongst us. And it's been fantastic. I mean, I talk of the St. Louis comedy community uh, as my extended family because they really are. I mean, they really, you know, took me in. And I know that that's very unusual in comedy scenes a lot of times for, you know, the seasoned veterans to bring somebody new in unless they just go out there and, you know, completely knock everybody for a loop. Uh, I don't think I've ever been that kind of a guy, but I work really hard at it. Uh, and I enjoy it and I enjoy the other people and I'm constantly, you know, observing and learning. And, and so I think that they appreciate that. So it's been great. I talked to Chris Sear a year ago and he's fantastic. He is sensational. And he was among the first to really help me develop and grow. Yeah. He and I, we don't talk very often, but if I ever have a question for anything around that, like the Midwest, I go to him. And he's quick to respond, and uh, he's just a good dude. So if he's like, if he's one of those, I don't know, gatekeepers is a stupid word, I think, but like he's one of the guys who's like kind of like leading the way. You guys are in good hands. Yeah, um, I wouldn't call him a gatekeeper as much as I'd call him probably um, a star maker. I mean, he runs what, in my opinion, and keep in mind, I run anywhere from one to three shows depending upon what's going on. But he runs like my favorite show independent show in town, uh, Impolite Company. It's a great comics hang. It's a great show. It's in a great venue. And, you know, he will purposely, you know, find comics, you know, that are really just starting to get going and things like that. And he'll put them on. He'll give them a guest spot. And then when he thinks that they're ready, he'll put them on as a host, give them, you know, an opportunity to really grow and develop like that. He's just one of those guys. And then he'll give you feedback. You know, he still gives me feedback and, and I'm grateful for it. But yeah, I mean, he's just one of those guys. And I've really modeled myself after Chris with respect to the whole showrunner philosophy that, yeah, that's what you want to do. You want to, you know, you want to help grow the community because, you know, you're going to have attrition. You know, you hope people move up and move on like people in our scene have done. You got your Nathan Orton's and your Reggie Edwards's and your Stefan Hightower's you know, moving on and, and, and going to New York and all that. But, you know, you're also going to have people that are going to drop out and stuff like that. So you want to make sure that you have, you know, a vital, vibrant scene. And so he really does what he can to help newer comics really grow and give them space to learn the craft, and get some good mentoring and some good feedback. So that's what I've been trying to do now that I've got a few whiskers on me in the scene is to kind of do the same thing that he does. At what point did you feel comfortable enough to run a show? Um, sooner than probably most comics would, just because I have had a, you know a fairly extensive business and event planning background. So I, I had those skills built in, and I had enough material to be able to you know do a seven to eight minute host set. So I started hosting shows. Uh, I was in for about seven or eight months when I started hosting shows at a, at a little upstairs, well, it's since moved on, but uh, it was a little upstairs bar at a place called Brennan in the central West end in St. Louis room holds about probably 30, 40 people or whatever. And I used to have a, a, a Sunday night show once a month called the comedy penthouse where it was the front end of it was a showcase. And then the back end of it was an open mic. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, I got experience being able to control how much time I had because it was my show. So when right. I felt like doing seven or eight minutes, I did seven or eight minutes. When I felt like I had a good 15 to 20, I would do 15 to 20 and just kind of kind of do that. So it was a it was half workshop, half showcase, but it was a good time. And then from there, I, I just kind of got bit by the bug and started finding other venues and running shows. That's kind of how I did it. I think it was five months in when I put on my first show. And, you know, I wasn't really sure how to do it. I was basically watching other people do it, taking mm -hmm. a very little 
bit of advice because I'm not, I'm fairly introverted and I, I, at least I was, I still am to a bit, but I thought when you ran a show, you were supposed to headline it. And it, <laughs> so, I mean, imagine a comedian five months in headlining his show, like just, you're not ready. So no. my second show, I hosted it and I was like, oh, this is, this feels better. Since then, I mean, it's been five years and I, I produce shows all over New York and a little bit in Pennsylvania, but right now, not all the rooms are active, but I run 19 rooms and Holy it's like, God. yeah, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm a collector. So I've got a bunch yeah. of venues <laughs> and uh, I always say like, I've got a healthy mix of ADD and OCD. So I'm able to organize pretty well. And yeah. what I did, and I don't know if you felt like this, but once you start booking a show, you kind of feel not obligated to help people, but like almost privileged. Like, okay, I can make three people. I run a four person show. So I usually host everything. And then I can make three people really happy. You know, when, when I send them a message, like, Hey, can you do this show? And yeah. I feel really good about that. Absolutely. And then it, and then it comes to a point where it's like, okay, well, I want to make uh, I mean, I do monthly shows at, at some venues so I can get three more people involved here and three more the next month. Uh, for me, it became addicting. Like, Oh, I, I can do this yeah. and it feels great. And now I can kind of what Chris does. I can give a guest spot here and there, but I, I generally don't give guest spots. I give 10 to 15 minute opening spots mm-hmm. and then anchor them with very good comedians to, you know, as an insurance. Yeah. So it, there's so much fun in, in running your show. And it's, and it's also cool too, when you're, when you're setting your own lineups is that you get to, de- you get to design your own entertainment. You know, yeah. it's like if, if, you know, if I want to see Chris Sear do 40 minutes, I just say, Hey, yeah, I'm, uh, I, I've got this show uh, at the Gaslight Theater and I want you to headline it. Can you do 40? Well, yeah, sure. Whatever. So yeah, it's like you get to, it's almost like your own personal Netflix in a way. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it, you get to choose. It's great because like, uh, that's one of my favorite things. Like I never have to pay for a comedy show if I don't want. Like, right. I, I get every, now granted, I see, I mean, I would say I've got, a healthy, like 40 or 50 people I'm shuffling through. So mm-hmm. like I get a little bit of variety, but after a while, like I know these guys jokes, I I'm waiting for somebody to write something new because I've seen it eight times. But yeah. what I'd end up doing is if, if you're on my show three times, I will take so much pleasure in watching the audience on the third show, mm-hmm. you know, because like, Oh, like there's a different reaction from this person or, or that person for me, there's so much joy in doing the show producing. And I don't understand fully why other people don't like doing it. Um, you know, I think it's, I, I think it takes a special breed because I think there's, there's some people I think uh, that are just afraid. Uh, well, I, afraid is a, a horrible term, but they're just, you know, reluctant to take risks sometimes, you know, what if nobody shows up? you know, things like that. Some people I think are just not comfortable working with venues too. Uh, you know, let's, let's face it. I mean, you know, especially like, you know, bar shows and things like that. I mean, you know, bar owners and, you know, people who are really kind of, you know, their profits are on the razor's edge and they're really counting on you to do something. They can be, you know, pretty impatient, uh, if, you know, one show doesn't draw well or, yeah, you know, you get a bunch of people that are just sitting around drinking water, you know, rather than ordering drinks and whatnot, things like that. And I think a lot of people just don't want to be told, uh, yeah, we don't want you back. Plus, I, you know, I think there, I, I think there's also, it's work. And I think some people just want to enjoy the performance side of comedy and not deal with the aggravation of the business side of comedy, doing the promotion and, and you know, postering and doing all that stuff. Yeah, I just lost the venue because, I mean, we, we didn't, uh, the last show, man, I, I wish we could have drawn well at the last show, but like, uh, so I get it why why it cut us, but like, I knew it was going to be the last one. We had drawn on average, like 30 people, 35 people to the show in a very small town. And I'm like, how, how do you not see that that's a better Wednesday night crowd than you have on your other Wednesdays and it's worth the the investment? But yeah, I, I don't like rejection. I think that's a hold up. You know, mm-hmm. from a lot of people from doing that, like I, I know a lot of people I talk to, they are hesitant to ask a bar for money for the show or right. to, to talk financial uh, finance with anybody. And yeah, that's a huge holdup. 
because I don't know how it is in St. Louis. Like here, I can go to a bar and say, okay, well, here's the product I'm giving. Here's what it costs. Or we can, I do a, a ticket option where the money from the budget is guaranteed, but deferred by the ticket costs. Mm-hmm. Or I can do a completely free option in which the bar will pay me, you know, whatever they're paying me. So right. most bars tend to go for that free option just because they don't want to push away the regulars or, you know, risk losing anybody walking into the business. So yeah, I, I think it's it's very important to get a little bit of credibility as a producer to say, hey, I can throw you 50 bucks for doing my show. How, how does that work in, in St. Louis? I mean, we're, we're, we're all over the place okay. the same way. I mean, like, uh, like Chris's show at the Crack Fox, uh, the employee company show. I mean, that is depending on uh, who's up that night, it could be $10 a head or $15 a head. You pay at the door and there's a door split with the venue on that. Yeah, I run a show at a 97-seat theater that happens to be right next to a bar and grill that's owned by the same people. So on that one, it's a pure door split. You know, I don't get any piece of the F&B, but, you know, I get a certain percent, you know, a pretty nice size percentage of, of the door there. And then there are some where it's, you know, I've done some shows where they just pay you a fixed amount and uh, you pay your comics, uh, you know, out of that. And it's a free show. So yeah, it, it just, it runs the gamut. I always like to tell people, especially owners who are like on the fence. I'm like, well, if you go with a ticket option, you're going to get a better audience. And they're like, yeah, but wouldn't less people go I'm like, yeah, but you're going to get a better audience. Like, because there's a psychological element to a free show where, yeah. oh, these guys suck. Or what does it matter? Like I can interrupt. I can be the star of the show. Whereas if you're paying 10 or $15, there's an investment all around you that like, oh, we should probably be better, better yeah. behaved. Also, they want to laugh more because they feel like that's part of the deal. Like, like, oh, we put $15 into this guy's hand. We got a good show now. Let's let's yeah, do our you've best got to a make more, it a better show. You definitely have a more engaged audience. You have an audience that wants to be there. So yeah, that works. And you have you just have to make it compelling, you know, for the the bar owner to you know understand that you know what they what they may be losing in walk-in traffic, they're going to make up for with people who are definitely going to be there for two hours. Right. You know, it's not going to be somebody who's coming in to get a drink and then going off somewhere else. You've got them for you know anywhere from you know seventy to one hundred and twenty minutes at least. And then, you know, if you do it at the right time, it's not that you're doing it right at closing time. And then people will stick around after the show uh, and drink some more because they're already invested into it or they've already had so much to drink that they can't go anywhere else. (laughs) I was pitching my my spiel to a, a manager recently and he's like, well, when do you start the show? And I said, well, generally like 10 or 15 minutes later than when I actually put on the poster. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, why would you do that? I go, well, think about it. I said, I said, if we give that grace period, you're going to sell a little bit more. And he goes, oh yeah. And I said, the whole product for me usually lasts about two hours. Like if our times are seven to nine, the show likely will end at nine, but it will start at seven fifteen. 15 because I've noticed that anytime you go after like past one forty-five, an hour and 45 minutes is the oh, cutoff yeah. point where it's oh, like, yeah. okay, Okay, they're done. It doesn't matter how good the next comedian is or your headliner. Like 35 minutes, 40 minutes into that person's set, they're out. I mean, it doesn't matter. So I remember I tried to get a show at a place and I got it. But the first time, you know, I wanted a a 10 or what is it? An 8 to 10 or a 9 to 11 spot. Mm -hmm. And the bar's like, well, can you do a three-hour show? And I said, I said, I could, but you don't want that. No. Oh, gosh. You're like, well, could you? I said, would you pay me a hundred dollars more? Like, yeah. Like, okay. It was awful. And I knew it was going to be awful. And what am I going to do as a producer? I had the better comedians go last and they got shit on because yeah. you know, you just, you go and, and yeah, uh, they ended up, your audience. right. And we ended up doing, I think two hours and 20 minutes and they paid me $50 less because oh, you didn't go three. I'm like, screw you. And then the next time we, <laughs> next time I did one more show there and they're like, yeah, we can try your time instead. And it worked great. Yeah, two two hours is yeah. I mean that would that would be pushing it. You know, I've been to some shows 
in London where it's gone about two and a half, but that's with an, that's with a couple of intermissions. That's with like two 20 minute intermissions. It was like a three set affair, you know, where you'd have two comics per set. It was about 40 minutes a session, something like that. How does that work with the intermissions? Like for you as an audience member, because I know I've got one owner here who like every three or four months, she suggests, how about an intermission? So people come down. I go, no, they can come down during anybody's set. Like I'll go up there in between and tell them to go and get drinks. Cause yeah. it's a, it's a two story thing. But I was like, I don't want to give a 10 minute intermission because I'm nervous that they won't come back or you have to restart the whole energy and the momentum. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that does, that does make it hard. And you've got everybody trying to get settled down and people bringing their drinks back to their seats and, you know, and, and people trying to get in, uh, you know, to interior seats in the rows and things like that. I mean, so yeah, I can see where that, I mean, I enjoyed it because I've always been a spectator over there. And so I spend the intermissions talking to the other comments, <laughs> uh, which is, I've made a couple of great connections, though, uh, doing that over there. But yeah, I mean, just a general audience member that's there, you know, strictly for the entertainment part of it. I don't know. I mean, they do it. So, I mean, the the one club that is really good at it is the Top Secret Club. Yeah, they have uh, they have two intermissions. And uh, I mean, they put even like on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, they'll put 140 people in a room. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, how's the comedy different over there? Um, with an accent. <laughs> okay, that's it. <laughs> I mean, uh, the the shows over there tend to be more diverse for sure. Um, you know, you're not going to get your, your typical, you know, uh, six white dudes, you know, six bro show. Then I'm out. That's, all, that's <laughs> the only comedy right. I like. I grew this beard to signify that I only want white bro shows. Yeah. Yeah. You're, 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 you're talking to a 53 year old white man in the suburbs. So yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I hear you there, but no, I mean, comedy is comedy. Uh, you know, the, the premises are, are pretty much you know, all the same. There's, you know, a lot more talk of the night bus or the tube. Uh, right. But other than that, you know, comedy is pretty universal. And, you know, they, they get some American comics that'll come over and, and do some stuff there and some expats, some Americans that are living in, in London that'll do that. But, you know, it's just a lot of fun. Um, the host at Top Secret is a, a comic who's originally from Barbados. His name's Nico Yearwood. And uh, you should go out on YouTube. I encourage everybody uh, in the listening audience to go out on YouTube and find Nico Yearwood. Sometimes he goes by Neeksman, N-E-E-K-S-M-A-N. He is one of the best, if not the best crowd work comic I have ever seen. And I've seen Jimmy Pardo. So he's that good. Real smart. I mean, he can riff with anybody and talk to anybody. You know, he'll ask somebody what they do. Uh, oh, I'm a geologist. And he'll start talking, you know, about rocks or something like that. Or no, I'm an accountant. And, you know, he'll start talking ledgers and, and whatnot. He's just one of those guys that just knows enough about everything that he can make anything funny. So it's it's fun. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to get over there, definitely check out the London comedy scene. It's, it's awesome. Who did you grow up listening to? I grew up listening to a lot of the Borschfeld guys because I used to stay, uh, you know, I came from the golden age of Johnny Carson, yeah. uh, you know, kind of that mid to late seventies, early eighties. So, you know, Alan King and, and Henny Youngman and Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers and, and that whole group. And then Steve Martin. Yeah, I was a huge Steve Martin fan. I tell the story that, you know, my dad and I, uh, whenever Steve Martin would be on The Tonight Show on a school night, he'd let me stay up so that I could watch Steve Martin's set. And then Steve Martin released an album. And my dad was, you know, so excited to surprise me one day. I came home and there's the Steve Martin album. Fortunately, and I was like 10. And fortunately, you know, we didn't sit down and listen to it together because I don't think my dad knew that Steve Martin was not always a Carson clean comedian. Right. Right. And so, yeah, there was stuff on that album that, you know, 
I wasn't exactly a naive 10 year old, but still in all, there was definitely material on there that he would not have been happy uh, that I had access to in fifth grade. But that's just how it goes. I remember watching Roxanne. Sure. When I was a Bergerac one. Yeah. And I had no idea who Serena was or anything. Mm -hmm. It must have been on in the background or something, because I don't remember sitting down with a bowl of popcorn and watching like maybe my parents or my aunt and uncle were watching it. But I saw Steve Martin and I didn't get it. I I loved Little Shop of Horrors, Mm -hmm. but that was really it. And then like I grew up, obviously, and I saw the jerk and I'm like, wow, there you go. I get it. And then, you know, you, you see him right now. Whenever he's on late night shows, he is an absolute must watch. And oh, yeah, especially with Martin Short and Martin Short's another guy where I didn't appreciate him at all. Honestly, I saw Martin Short in an episode of Law and Order SVU. And I was like, this guy is amazing. He is an incredible bad guy, just a, a fantastic villain. And he's great. And he's so quick. And their stage show, it's on Netflix. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic. But those guys yeah. like. Whenever they're on TV, I I make sure to watch. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of Martin Short, that was another thing that I, I cultivated, I guess, my taste for comedy on was the old SCTV. Yeah. Um, you know, back when uh, even before they had the the um, 90 minute Friday night show on NBC before that. Um, our local PBS station used to run the 30 minute CBC SCTV broadcast. Uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. And I used to watch those. Those used to be on like Friday nights at 10 o'clock where I would get to watch the old SCTVs. And some of that, some of that sketch comedy was just so cutting edge and so just blew Saturday Night Live away. Well, that was, that was uh, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara. Was Rick yep. Moranis on that? Rick Moranis, John Joe Candy, Flaherty, John Candy, Dave Thomas, Andrea Martin. That's and later Martin Short. Martin Short was on the version that NBC ran. I mean, yeah, I I, I need to watch that. Uh, a comedian up here, he's talked to me about how I think he has the DVD, like the box set. Yeah. And I've seen clips here and there, but I grew up on In Living Color. And like that would have been my SCTV because that was opposite SNL. Sure. And, you know, like I, I don't know, for some reason, maybe it's just that I was watching The Simpsons and I didn't know how to change the channel, but, <laughs> but I got, I got him living color like an hour later or maybe that was eight 30, but in like 1990, that yeah. was like, uh, it was the hip hop version, but like, it was like punk rock for me. It was like, Oh, that's <laughs> something that not my parents won't be watching this. I right. want to be watching this. And you had, you had Damon Wayans and Jim Carrey and yeah. all these people. I mean, I mean, you look at Jamie Foxx and David Allen Greer, they're winning Tony's and Oscars. And they started on this show. That would be my equivalent to SCTV. Yeah, I mean, and and that was great because, you know, that followed right on the heels of the Wayans' first real big hit, which was I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. Yeah. Which I used to watch repeatedly because, again, I grew up kind of on the back end of the heyday of the great exploitation films. I mean, to this day, my favorite cinema movie of all time is the original shaft so i've never I mean, watched it oh it's fantastic it is great richard roundtree i mean he he just oozes cool in that movie i mean you will never find a, a cooler movie character than the original john shaft he's just, he's ice cold it's a great movie uh fantastic soundtrack by isaac hayes isaac hayes won the, the oscar for best soundtrack but it's just a, a really great movie but this spoofed that movie and like Superfly and Dolomite and all those, you know, um, Sweet Sweetback, all those. And it was just spot on. And there were just little inside jokes and inside bits that if you didn't really weren't really kind of a connoisseur of black exploitation film, it probably went over your head. But what was great was that the movie was hilarious on its own standing, but it just goes to show the the brilliance and the eye for comedic detail that Keenan Ivory Wayans had. And then he took that to the, the small screen and put it in the sketch format and it worked and it was great. And yeah, I mean, you know, he launched Jim Carrey. Well, the funny no part question is about that. The funny part is like Jim Carrey 
didn't get the SNL part. Like he was turned no. down by SNL and Keenan's like, Hey, I got a show for you. And he carried that. And you could argue that he carried that show and he was definitely the breakout character, but like Tommy Davidson, where else were we going to find him? He was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And Kelly Caulfield ended up going on uh, and Ali Wentworth. They were both on Seinfeld. Right. It's like all these characters. I mean, it was just, I can't say enough good things about them. And then, you know, Chris Rock ends up, He's on uh, In Living Color the last, like, five episodes or six episodes. So, I don't know, man. They, and Damon Wayans is on SNL for, like, a year. Maybe a year. Yeah, yeah. And well, and I, Chris Rock was actually an I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. He played, yeah. uh, I don't know if he was a homeless guy, but he was a he was a moocher in a rib joint. It was, it was, it, but it, it was one of those, you know, uh, iconic scenes that just solidified Chris Rock as this great comedic actor. You know, in to- addition to being a great stand-up. Yeah, two of my favorite movies from that era are Mo Money and Blank Man. Okay. And, and they're both Damon Wayans. I mean, uh, yeah. Marlon Wayans. At, well, David Allen Greer is in Blank Man, and then Marlon Wayans is in Mo Money. So, like, there's just these offshoots. And I'll watch those two movies probably every year and just laugh. And Stacey Dash, before she went crazy, uh, <laughs> was, was in Mo Money. And it's just, I don't know. But I wonder sometimes, like, if you take Keenan Ivory out of the picture, what happens? What happens to comedy at that point? Like it's, it's such a different game. Yeah. I mean, you'd have Lauren Michael still being the sole power broker probably. Yeah. It's so weird. I don't, I don't want to think about it too much. <laughs> uh, no, be thankful it happened. And guys, just think about that. Here's, you know, uh, what network carried in living color Fox. Fox. <laughs> you know, well, that was, I mean, a filthy word now, but yeah, I really forgot about that. But like, I mean, that whole run with, I mean, that's, I grew up and I say it all the time, but like the Simpsons and Living Color, Married to Children and the George Carlin show. I mean, that yeah. last spot kind of flipped around a little bit, but that was great. I mean, I'm just glad that my parents didn't give a shit. But like, all right, Mike, you got a TV in your room, stay in there. And yeah. the rule was I had to be in the room at night. It didn't matter if the TV was on. Cause I think I told them back then, I'm like, I can't fall asleep unless I've got the TV and you know, it might've been a joke back then. Now it's true, but I did that to myself. But yeah, I always say that those, like, especially Living Color and The Simpsons, like those are the two TV shows that I watched. And I was like, oh, that, that kind of informed everything that I find is funny. Yeah. I got lucky because when I was a kid, Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler had big movie careers and Chris right. Farley. Yeah. I tell you what, I'm glad The Simpsons came along when it did. The Simpsons came along during my first year of law school. The Simpsons would have come along when I was in like maybe fourth or fifth grade. Um, I'd probably be in prison now. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know that I don't know that it's worse that I became a lawyer rather than a, a, a hopefully ex-con at this point in my life. But <laughs> depends on I'm the crime. Just, I'm just, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that uh, it's a good thing it didn't come along until uh, uh, I, I had already reached um, relative maturity. Now, were you watching that during law school? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, how? Oh, yeah, because at that time, it was on Thursday night. Oh, that's right. O'clock. So the the week was already starting to wind down by then. You know, if it if it had been on in its Sunday night slot, uh, there's very little chance that I would have seen it. Because Sunday nights were always the big nights where you had to be ready for Monday because most of us had our heavy classes on Mondays and Wednesdays. So there was a shit ton of reading and briefing and stuff like that, that you would have to do just in case you got called on first thing on Monday, uh, you wanted to be totally prepared. So yeah, Sunday nights were blackout nights for most of us. I mean, you're still practicing law, right? Well, I'm not practicing anymore. I work for a legal services support company. So I'm in what we're now calling development, which is just basically me kind of working with attorneys and working with law firm management on perfecting their systems, perfecting the the methods of practice and, and the methods of managing their clients as they manage their litigation as well. So I'm I'm, I'm, I like to refer to myself as the fun uncle for hire. <laughs> Did you have a lot of experience like uh, in court? Yeah. Yeah. I was, a, I was a litigator uh, for just about 10 years, a little more than 10 years, actually, uh, mostly in the area of uh, commercial and retail collections. 
So about as bleak as you can get, um, you know, dealing with people who had, you know, very little money anyway, uh, trying to squeeze even that much more out of them to keep the wheels of capitalism greased. Um, so fortunately, that is almost two decades in my rearview mirror now. So uh, I can't I can't expunge the damage I did to our society by working for banks and finance companies and things like that. But I can at least say that I had the decency to walk away from it eventually and go do something and try to be helpful for a change. But it's it's kind of a, a bummer because what good are you to a bunch of these degenerate comedians who need legal advice? Well, um, I still have I, I still have a good network. I still have plenty of friends who are attorneys. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and it, it also just so happens that that both of my daughters have uh, very good friends of theirs who are sisters and their father is a criminal defense attorney. So, you know, anytime, you know, and, and there have been there have been a couple of people within the comedy community uh, I won't name names, but they'll be like, yeah, I got a DUI over the weekend. Do you know anybody that I could talk to about that? And I can send them on their way. And the ones I enjoy are the are the, the ones who say, yeah, I'm actually starting to make money for the first time in a long time. And I'd like to, you know, be able to make sure that uh, I get my taxes right. And, you know, I don't get into any kind of trouble like that. Can you refer me to you know, either a tax attorney or an accountant. Those are the ones that I really love because that means that they're on their way. If I'm you, I carry my business card and my buddy's business card. But like whatever comedian, like, all right, well, remember me, I'm Yale. Also, I kind of think you might need this in the future. Yeah, Take yeah. This. <laughs> yeah, work out a referral pipeline. That'd be kind of cool. But oh, that's, uh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I I do it out of the goodness of my heart. Uh, you know, I, again, we're like, a, we're like a family in St. Louis, so... You know, I'm, to the extent I can take care of people, I will take care of them, even if that means sending them to somebody who really can take care of them. Because, you know, the the joke is always, oh, well, yeah, Yale, you're a lawyer. Can you help me with this? I say, well, I can help you find a good lawyer. <laughs> I said, I'm a lawyer. You need a good lawyer. <laughs> Why do you think I'm on stage right now? Do, uh, the one thing I, I really want to know is uh, I, you know, we're Facebook friends and everything. Explain to me your joke with the New Yorker cartoon with this motherfucker, <laughs> because every time I see that cartoon, a different cartoon, I laugh. Well, I appreciate that. Well, here's 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 the background for uh, those of you who are not following uh, my Instagram account at Yale Hollander. Um, <laughs> every week that the New Yorker magazine publishes, they have on their back page a cartoon caption contest. And every time they publish this cartoon caption contest, I will enter either the phrase this motherfucker or some variant on that, because I am of the belief that you can use that phrase or that variant for just about any New Yorker cartoon, especially since so many of the New Yorker cartoons are dialogue based. They're based upon you know, one character speaking to another character or otherwise interacting with another character. And there's something weird going on either in the background or with one of the characters. So, you know, sometimes it's a thought balloon, you know, with somebody thinking this motherfucker, uh, or sometimes it's, you know, somebody doing something, it looks like they're speaking and the other person is just kind of looking off in the distance or something like that. And again, it's this motherfucker. Or sometimes it's two people in a precarious situation or something like that where it looks like something has just happened and it'll be these motherfuckers or something like that. <laughs> but I really went off the rails about a month ago when there was one with a guy standing in front of a fireplace mantle and over the fireplace mantle uh, where you would ordinarily see like a, a stag's head or a bear's head or something like that. Instead, it was a serpent that was coming out of the mounting uh, and right in the in the observer's face. And so I entitled that one, This Motherfucker. <laughs> so yeah, so that's my thing. That's my thing. And, and people just wait to see how I'm going to fit this motherfucker into the next 
the next comic. So yeah, it's, it's my thing. It's dumb. I don't ever expect to win, uh, but I have been recognized and that's been fun. There is apparently, well, not apparently because I've seen it. There is uh, a Facebook group out there uh, with people who like hardcore enter these contests. And a lot of times they'll either win or be finalists. And it's been mentioned a couple of times. Have you seen the guy who every week submits this motherfucker? <laughs> and so, and so one time I respond and I'm like, yeah, I'm that guy. And then uh, people's like, oh, this is great. I'm so glad you're a member of the community. You're that motherfucker. I am that motherfucker. And so, of course, I went out on Zazzle and had shirts made. So a lot of times when you see me on stage, I'll be wearing a shirt that says this motherfucker, except the CK <laughs> has got asterisks instead because I'm a classy and tactful individual. Of course. Have he you says, ever, as he utters the word motherfucker in front of his teenage daughters for the fifth time in the last 17 seconds. <laughs> have you gotten any feedback from like the New Yorker? I have not. Okay. Um, I am Facebook friends with Emily Flake, who occasionally does submit cartoons to the New Yorker, but I'm sure she's got me on mute. So she probably <laughs> hasn't seen any of it. I think you need to get like a letter writing campaign. Just to flood the inbox over the New York. I want it to happen organically. I want to be pleasantly surprised one day. You want to earn it. Yeah. You know, I want to get that telephone call from David Remnick saying, we'd like to hire you as our <laughs> caption writer. Easiest money you've ever made. Is that, absolutely. <laughs> I ask everybody this, but do you remember your worst set, the worst show you've ever done? Uh, well, um, not to get all Dickensian on you, but it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Um, this w happened last May at Helium Comedy Club. I was a last minute call in to host for Shane Torres. And Shane, I had only got to host a Saturday night show because it was a big scheduling snafu. So I had actually had the luxury of catching Shane's whole set before I ever had to go and host for him. So I was, you know, really pleased that I was able to put together a set that I knew wasn't going to, you know, run on anything that he was going to have or anything like that. So I came into this thing totally prepared, went out for the first show. It was a, it was a double header. It was a Saturday night show, went out for the first show, did my set, executed perfectly it was great had a you know nailed everything the way i wanted it to then the next comic uh got up alex grubard uh was the the feature comic and he went out there and and he just killed and then shane went on and alex and i uh, are sitting in the back listening to shane's set although i had already heard it uh, and we're kind of bullshitting back and forth and the next thing i hear is coming from the stage yeah get out of here now and i open the door to the green room and shane comes barreling in and i have to go out on stage and basically have to ad lib uh have to you know come up with you know other stuff that i hadn't planned on doing because shane apparently had food poisoning oh no and he went back to the green room to throw up. Now, I didn't know that at the time because all I saw was, you know, this massive man coming at me through the green room door. I didn't know whether the show was over, whether something had happened and they were wrapping up, but the lights never came on. So it's like, oh, I guess I'm doing material. So I had to kind of wing it. And I'm in the, you know, I figure I don't know how the hell long I'm going to be out here. So I start going into a bit that's about three minutes long. And about two minutes into the joke, Shane decides that he's feeling well enough to come back on. So I don't even get to finish the joke. So it made it seem to the audience like I'm in the middle of telling some kind of a shaggy dog story because they didn't get to the punchline. Right. So it's like, OK. And then Shane goes out and he does another half an hour. And then I'm thinking to myself, when I go back out to do all the thank yous and good nights, do I finish the joke? <laughs> I don't think I do. And so I didn't. So, yeah, so that was kind of, you know, you never think about, you know, working an empty room, uh, working a, a full room and having your mind completely go blank. And that's kind of exactly what happened. And then by the time I recovered, so had his gastrointestinal system. Oh, God, I can't imagine that. 
I definitely had to like go on stage before. Like comedians sometimes when at my shows they'll end awkwardly. Mm-hmm. Or like, oh yeah. Or like they forget a joke here and there, and you know they don't do the full twenty five. But I I don't smoke, and I'm very rarely at the bar trying to get another drink while they're on stage. So like I'm usually prepared to do it. There are sometimes where I'm buried in my phone or something like that. I just kind of lost track of everything. But yeah. yeah, to have a larger man run at me screaming my name. I mean, some would say it's a dream, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not one of them yet. But no, it, it was not a dream. That's for sure. Not a good dream anyway. So was there any interaction between you two after the show? Like, like, hey, sorry, uh, I had to do that or. Uh, no, he, he was just like, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I don't know why I must have eaten something bad at the hotel. And then he went out and did a second show. And I sat right behind the curtain in the alcove in between the green room and the stage, which is, you know, maybe three square feet in the dark the entire time because I wasn't taking any chances. And I'm sitting there with my notebook you know, with a backup set just in case it's like, okay, I may have to take my note. Cause I, I, I use a little, uh, I guess it's a, a three by five. I use a little, you know, pocket size Moleskine notebook uh, just to write set lists and things like that. And just keep it in my back pocket so that I can just cram it back there and at least have it with me, you know, in an emergency or something like that. But it's like, if I got to go out there, I'm just taking it out putting it down on the stool and doing my thing at that point in time, aesthetics don't matter because I want to do a quality set and not just fill time uh, while he's puking his guts out. Yeah. I don't know if there's a way to say, okay, well, if you could do it over again, how would you prepare for that? Like, I think there's some things in comedy where it just happens. Yeah. But that, I mean, obviously it happened one time. Now you're, you're aware that there's a possibility, but I would never think that, okay, somebody might get food poisoning tonight. So here's what I do just in case. Right, right. Well, I tell you, I tell you what I do now, particularly on shows that I run is I just have, you know, I have one of these, I guess you'd call it a man bag, I suppose, you know, it's an over the shoulder carry all thing. And so now, you know, I'll carry my notebooks and my pens in there. But I also now keep a bottle of Pepto-Bismol pills and Tylenol and, and Advil in there as well, because I had a, another show this summer, one of the shows that I run at uh, the Gaslight Theater here in St. Louis. Uh, I had Mike Kaplan in, and right before the show started, his girlfriend wound up with a migraine, and I didn't have anything for it. I felt terrible about that. So it's like, okay, now I know to at least keep painkillers and stomach <laughs> stomach tablets uh, uh, with me at all times, because I want to be the host with the most. I want to be the guy that, you know, the show will go on. You're like Mary Poppins. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could fit an umbrella in there, but or a coat <laughs> rack, but just about anything else. Yeah. That's insane. I, I generally, uh, when I produce the show is like, I almost like, a, cause I've been hosting an open mic in the area. I host two now, but for like five and a half years. And with that, when you're around a lot of comedians, we are not the most responsible people. So like in my bag, I've got old joke notebooks that people haven't come by to pick up. I've taken coats. My ex-girlfriend had a sweatshirt, a sweater that she really liked that another comedian left behind. And like (laughs) we were trying to return it. And and she's like, no, I don't want it anyway. So somewhere there's a, a black sweater. That's just walking around Binghamton, New York, that it should be in Syracuse. But oh, like, good grief. it's like, but I make sure I, I picked up gloves, keys one time. I don't know how that happened. Credit cards. And like, I, I paid tabs for people. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll put a 20% tip on there. It's just nuts. Like I just stay behind and I wait to assess the damage. And then I put everything in my bag. It's like the Mary Poppins of comedy. I love that analogy. I love that so much. And uh, I, I will tell people, I'm like, yeah. I love the comedians in my scene. I really do. But they are not good adults. Yeah, I think that's why, I, I, in a way, sometimes I think that's why they like having me around and guys like Chris here too, who's, uh, he'll be 45 this year. So yeah, you know, uh, the, the grownups with, with day jobs and mortgages, we tend to take care of the flock. But you know, it's, it's a labor of love. It's like uh, almost overnight, I went from having two kids to having like 46 kids. <laughs> And I love them all the same. All the same. I, I bet your kids are like, well, we don't get a higher billing at least a little bit. Well, no. Okay. So maybe not all the same. 
Maybe two of them are a little bit higher than the others, but <laughs> it's really going to break Chris's heart, but I guess he's going to have to learn to live with it. Yeah. Chris is, he's not so much a kid as he is a younger cousin. I think when Chris and I were talking, like it, we might've been like three or four minutes in, or maybe it's the end of the interview, but he started talking about full house and I'm like my guy or fuller house even. So, oh, yeah. like, so we were, we we're on the same wavelength. Yeah. That's what he said. He said, uh, he had to host a show on like New Year's Eve and he had nothing to do. And he's like, yeah, I planned my day. And I was just going to watch all of the, the season finale of Fuller House, like that whole last one. And then I got I got called in to host a comedy show. And he goes, well, plans change. I'm like, man, that's a, that's a dream. <laughs> like, <laughs> like your two options are Fuller House and comedy shows. Go for it. So so when you say, oh, Chris can handle himself. I don't know. <laughs> Well, you've, you've got to understand that it's relatively speaking. I mean, we're talking within the context of the local comedy scene. That's right. The bar is very different. Yeah, to be sure. Well, I, I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun talking. Uh, how can, I mean, what are you working on now? I mean, what do you have to promote? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm working on the uh, Omicron variant, not <laughs> shutting down all of, all of my shows. I was supposed to, uh, after a, a lengthy hiatus, from uh, the gosh, it'd be a seven-month hiatus that my my Gaslight Theater comedy series. Uh, we're supposed to have our first triumphant return show. Actually, it's our second triumphant return uh, from coronavirus this coming Friday night. But uh, my headliner got hit with the the big O, so uh, that uh, that killed that show. And then the one I was supposed to be on the following night uh, that got canceled because the venue doesn't want to you know, have uh, that many people, you know, hanging around in there. So that, you know, that went down. And so, yeah, um, what I'm working on now is being able to actually follow through with book gigs. But uh, I, I uh, you know, hopefully uh, the next Gaslight Theater show, uh, which will be uh, February the 4th, I don't know when this is going to air, and I don't know how many people in St. Louis uh, we'll be listening to this. But uh, it's a monthly show that we're uh, guaranteed right now through June at the theater. It's a it's a fantastic venue. It's a, a, a double decker vaudeville style theater. It's got you know it's got a real cool little balcony to it that you actually have to go outside the theater and through an ex, uh, through a, a, a different set of stairs to to get up to the balcony. Uh, but it's awesome. I had Mike Kaplan there this summer. I had Ophira Eisenberg there this summer and it's, you know, it's quickly gaining traction as one of the, the bigger, uh, comedy draws in town outside of the clubs. So I'm, you know, continuing to produce that. And then, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for, for more venues in St. Louis. Um, right now, the one show that I do have, it's in kind of the central West end of the city of St. Louis. Um, I would like to continue to have some shows out a little bit further west into the suburbs, um, which is really kind of underserved by comedy right now. I mean, you've got like the Funny Bone Club is out in one part of it, but really out where I am in the far western reaches of the St. Louis area, uh, there's no comedy. So um, I've had some luck uh, with a couple of places. One of them closed down. So yeah, I'm I'm always looking around for kind of unconventional places to put comedy where I think people will will come and enjoy it, which is what I did uh, three years ago uh, when I ran a show on our um, very quickly doomed trolley system uh, in, in St. Louis. And when I say trolley system, I mean two streetcars running on a 2.2 mile track uh, with virtually no featured destinations on it. Um, it's a huge boondoggle here in St. Louis, the yeah. loop trolley. How did that go? Uh, well, it went very slowly because it was a, a trolley. Um, no, <laughs> it, it it was great until the trolley announced that it was um, a quarter of a million dollars in debt and uh, was going to have to shut down. And that was the end of that after two shows. Wow. See that or, so no. I kind of, yeah, I kind of got some notoriety in town about that. The county executive, which is basically like the mayor of St. Louis County, when the trolley authority went to the county and the city of St. Louis, for additional funds to run the thing, his quote was, I don't feel like we need to be investing public funds into a rolling comedy club. <laughs> so that was my 1.5 seconds of fame. It's hard to blame him. No, no. Look, I'm not, I'm not blaming him. I'm just saying. 
that uh, that was uh, that was my uh, fame. It was the only I think it was the only positive press ever generated about the trolley because everything else was, you know, why did we spend fifty two million dollars in federal and local money on this thing? And now the federal government wants their money back. So they're going to have to put it back into service. Otherwise, the federal government has the right to claw back fifty two million dollars. Now, granted, we could cover that with the money that the Rams, you know, sent us for for leaving town. <laughs> but still, in all, um, uh, I don't think anybody wants to do that. So, uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll come to me and say, "Hey, you know, even though you've been shitting on us for the last two and a half years because your show died, come back and do it again." <laughs> well, they need to raise all that money. You could do a fifty-two million dollar fundraiser. Yeah, with a free show. How are you going to make the money? <laughs> Volume. <laughs> How can people follow along with you on social media uh, or anything? How do they find they can, this motherfucker? They can find this motherfucker um, on uh, Twitter at, at Yale Hollander. Uh, that's mostly me complaining about English soccer, but uh, every now and then I'll throw a, a joke up there. Uh, and then Instagram at Yale Hollander. Those are my two real mainstream channels for finding me uh, online. Plus, I have a website, uh, YaleHollander.com. You'll find uh, some of well, you'll find all of the dates where I'm at least scheduled to perform. Uh, and then you'll also find some press about me, some writing that I've done in the past. Uh, and who knows, maybe I'll put some stuff up there again when I have something worthwhile to worthwhile to put up. That's the hard part for me. It's like, oh, I want to show this to the world. No. Yeah. <laughs> like that self-conscious part will always be there. Yeah, like, take it off, take it off, take it off. <laughs> well, again, man, thank you so much for doing this, and best of luck with everything. Thanks for having me. Of course, it's a whole lot of fun. On wings off inside, some peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom, I, I hope they let me in.